Um, in my opinion, when somebody does a bilateral jump, so the double, a double leg jump, well, no matter what plyometric it is, it can be hurdle hops and hurdle hops are a go-to for me. It actually screws up the neurological pattern. In my opinion, you get a negative feedback loop and then I just fix it as soon as they're done. Force and accumulation, maybe we're thinking mostly uh, a unilateral with a gradual shift to bilateral. And then when we're thinking power and speed, we're going to support that with high power and high forces in the weight room using bilateral activities and bilateral jumps to match the power and speed qualities we want to see um, in support in terms of concentrating just the neurological load on the body. Like the Altus uh, rudiment series that you would start with, uh, you know, those just those low amplitude hops, you know, right foot to right foot and so on, left foot to left foot, and just going in these, going forward, backward, side to side, uh, going side out, outside, going side, inside, things like that. Um, and just progressing to, into maybe some bounding where they're and working from extensive to intensive. And from what I've seen over the past, just from some teams I've worked with starting in that manner and then progressing to more intense unilateral jumping, of course, doing the weight room exercises as well, along with some bilateral exercises in the weight room. But, um, staying on the, staying on the unilateral jumping plyometric work, uh, I've, I felt like it's, I can't, I can't say I pro can prove it. Right. But it's, I felt like there was a, a great uh, tissue resili resiliency built. That was Cal Dietz, Cameron Joss and Chad Dennis speaking on elements of unilateral and bilateral training in an integrative training system. You're listening to the just fly performance podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by our longtime sponsor, Simply Faster. There are a lot of sports technology companies out there, but Simply Faster is the only website you can go to that features an online store that covers the bandwidth of training technology, from force plates to timing systems to muscle simulators and more. Some products of Simply Faster that I use and love include things like the free lap timing system in KBox or coaches' favorites such as GymAware. Recently, Simply Faster has added two units that as a coach, you should definitely take a look at. The first is the Muscle Lab Contact Grid, which is an extremely affordable and portable step-by-step, -step, literally, system to collect data on jumps, bounds, sprints, agility, hurdle hops, and really as much as your creative mind can imagine. In what used to take a whole runway worth of collecting of data collecting strips, the Contact Grid does it all with only two small strips that together cover up to 40 meters of sprinting. Ground contact time, step rates, rhythms, and beyond are at your fingertips with this device. Another new unit, the VO2 Master, is an ultra-portable gas exchange analyzer. Don't guess on energy system development when you can get direct insight into VO2 capabilities in relation to specific sports skills, rather than uh, being hooked up to tubes on a treadmill or worse yet, a cycle ergometer to get a VO2 Max. Think of the VO2 Master as your own gas exchange lab without the tubes and wires. Deepen your analysis in the specific conditioning preparation of your athletes with the VO2 Master today. These products and incredible customer service make Simply Faster your go-to for your sports technology needs. I'm happy to have partnered with them in sponsoring this podcast. Their support has been tremendous, so check them out today at simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. Welcome to episode 168 of the Just Fly Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Smith. Thanks for being here today. 
On the show, we have a special guest expert roundtable with Cal Dietz, Cameron Joss, and Chad Dennis. And the topic is the always fiery single and double leg training, pros, cons, drawbacks, and most importantly, the integration of each of these methods into a total training system. Cal Dietz is the author of Triphasic Training. He is the head Olympic strength and conditioning coach for, and has been for numerous sports at the University of Minnesota, and he is a frequently requested and sought-after speaker and authority in the field. Cameron Josh is the director of sports performance at DeFranco's Gym. He has been a guest on this show two times, and his two shows with me thus far have been nothing short of completely and totally illuminating uh, a very bright young mind in the field who is doing great things. Cameron is also co-author of the book, The Process, uh, which he wrote along with Fergus Connolly, which is a number one new release in sports training, and you can check that out on Amazon right now. Chad Dennis is a veteran strength and conditioning coach and for the last 17 years has been working in high school, collegiate, and professional levels. Uh, he is currently the director of performance for the XFL team, the Seattle Dragons. So an awesome cast of coaches today. Unilateral versus bilateral or single leg versus double leg training is always a common presentation in our field in terms of which one's better, which one should I have my athletes be doing? Um, the fact of the matter is each has its own pros and cons and its own strengths and drawbacks. And to this end, Cameron Joss originally reached out to me of some things that him and Chad Dennis had been talking about in regards to a periodization plan with single leg training early in, early in training and moving into the intensification of training and then focusing more on bilateral work. Uh, so we got Cal Dietz as well for this show, and we are going to talk about that. So the periodization and planning and how uh, the mode of unilateral or bilateral training will fit into your organization over the year. Uh, then we're going to get into the neurological ramifications of each style of training. So maybe even regardless of the exact periodization in the session itself, in the microcycle, if you will, how does how does each style of training affect the body and affect the nervous system in terms of threat response, uh, balance response? And how do we build even even the single session? How, what are some things to look at even within that single session and how the athlete is responding to that on a neurological level? We'll also get into um, jump training. Within the scope of unilateral and bilateral training, I think 99% of what's ever talked about is probably things within the weight room. So squatting, split squatting, roof foot elevated squatting. I've never heard uh, I've never heard unilateral and bilateral training discussed within the scope of jump training to the extent uh, before I did this before I did this roundtable show. I know we've heard like single leg versus double leg in terms of contact times and things like that, but we really get into it on a deeper level, and it's something I really took with me after the show was over. So again, this was a fantastic discussion. I took so many things, and I know you will too. I was really fortunate to have this cast of experts. So with that being said, let's get on to the show today. All right. Well, my uh, Cam, my hat is off to you, sir. So you can kick this thing off. All right, cool. Yeah, I mean, so this whole idea of just looking between, you know, unilateral training and bilateral training, it really started with a conversation I had with Chad Dennis, who's, who's here with us right now. And basically, I was showing Chad my program template when he visited me here in New Jersey. And uh, at that time, basically I was trying to add some variety into my program by basically alternating my two week cycles between a bilateral emphasis and a unilateral emphasis. 
and I was just kind of switching back and forth um, every two weeks between emphases. And Chad was looking at it, and he was basically like, you know, what if you did a longer progression of just unilateral and then shifted to bilateral? He just kind of thought of it on the spot while we were we were talking, and and uh, he was like, you know, in my mind. I feel like unilateral is going to be more strength oriented and then bilateral, you're going to get a little more power output and speed of movement. And, uh, when he said that, I immediately thought of triphasic training when, you know, Cal and uh, Ben had that chapter, that little, that little section in there talking about unilateral training and how single leg work is, you know, basically a little bit more strength oriented, whereas we can get more power output, more speed off the ground with jumps uh, that are bilateral in nature versus unilateral. So I just started thinking about it a little bit more after Chad left. It just started consuming me, right? I was just like, I need to think more about this and understand uh, that a little bit more. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized that a lot of the qualities we want to build early on in the off season actually coincide pretty well with a unilateral training system, basically, if we want to use a progression from that standpoint. You know, early in the off season, we want to think uh, foundational strength qualities, coordination, variability, uh, just exposing our athletes to general skills that are just, you know, trying to really emphasize their coordination more than anything. So I started looking at it as um, a progression where we start with a foundation of coordination and then we eventually transfer that into just really high outputs. And then if we're looking at the field, right, if we think field first for team sport athletes, that's important in the context that I'm talking about here is team sport athletes. If we are using field work in our program year round, we're going to start with a little bit simpler field work of shorter spaces, smaller spaces. If we're using a short to long model, we're going to progress to bigger spaces, faster speed, longer distances in our sprint work, more intense plyometrics as we progress. And so if we have a foundation of unilateral stability and strength and just coordination, that'll help us generate more power and more speed when we progress into those uh, more specialized periods of training. That was really just like a really basic overview of the concept behind it is that we start with a base of coordination and just helping the athletes understand how to coordinate themselves on one leg, setting a foundation for when we intensify the field work later in our more specialized blocks of training. So that's basically just the concept behind it. And we can dive a little bit deeper into it as we go throughout the podcast for sure. Yeah. So, yeah, I think the big things with like um, the questions I have and I mean, ideally, right, it's just you're working single leg is more functional and we work functional to, like you said, double leg bilateral associated with more power. Um, so one of the, I guess the, what I'd, what I'd like to ask you, Cam, is, well, what results have you seen from that? Like compared to doing the two and two, right? Like, um, it, I mean, opening, putting things in a longer block of, of that, um, versus what you were doing, or maybe a good question to me to open it to is like, Cal, I mean, how long... And maybe I'll ask this first is, Cal, how long do you usually go with, uh, I know you do the contralateral circuits. Uh, how long are you doing more of the, the connection and functional vibe in, in that realm before you really ramp up more of the bilateral? Well, I'll be honest with you, man. I, I've kind of shifted towards more bilateral in all cases. And uh, I just keep getting a lot of bio, you know, when I check biofeedback. And when I say that, you can do some muscle testing. Another one you can do if I do when I found bad feedback was if you want to do a, a double leg squat and have them close their eyes when they do it. Um, and then if they do it on a force plate and then just check their balance, their sway 
and it's it's it actually is much worse than it is if you would do a, um, a unilateral split squat let's say so i just found that like many of the 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 benefits have been um in my opinion is is, is not as neurologically sound um the unilateral favors the cross crawl concept so um the the beauty that i found in the the bilateral here in my early early years of training was that we got a huge hormonal response i always wasn't a big fan of the unilateral because you couldn't load as much theoretically right and then the reason we train is is uh, really when we talk about team sports and power and strength we're talking about we want to get a hormonal response because marathoners train they train with a lot of volume but they look like shit right in most cases compared to our strength athletes because there's no hor great hormonal response and the hormonal responses are poor and when I say that when you go heavy you get a testosterone growth hormone and many other responses and I, so then I just switched to the uh, safety bar single leg squat in a unilateral sense so that I could hack um, the hormonal response. I got huge hormonal responses. And when I say that, I, I went super maximal loading. So, you know, I have girls that, that safety bar single leg squats are uh, 360 pounds. And I was able to, you know, you're able to get hormonal responses. And the same with the men that are 180 pounds using 600 plus pounds on the uh, safety bar squat. So um, in my programming, I, to me, it's not whether I was doing a double leg or single leg. Um, I, you know, like I said in the beginning, I, I'm not a big fan of a single leg squat with dumbbells because I just don't feel there's enough stress in my opinion. Okay. So that's why I favored the barbell or, you know, the, the bilateral training, but, you know, ultimately I was able to hack that with the safety bar split squat where I found, girls that didn't want to, you know, they didn't want to uh, put 200 or 300 pounds on their back are willing to put 360 pounds on the single leg squat and do a back squat, you know, or and I'm sorry, and do a single leg squat and get huge benefits out of it because of the stress that's involved, you know. Um, and I'm not, not sure, let's, let's take the best back squatters in the world. You know, I got, there's people online now that, that say, oh, you know, come to my class, I've squatted 900 pounds. And and I can teach you to be a strength coach and I'm sitting there watching these guys walk. They can't even walk when I have a, when I have a, when I have a team full of women that'll beat them in a 20 yard dash in a pro agility. I mean, you're going guy, like, I don't know what that, I don't know what that 900 pound squat does for you. Cause you aren't an athlete. There's not, you, you can't run 10 yards without pulling a hammy. I guarantee it. Um, but that's just a little rant. Sorry about that. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I understand that rant by the way. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You're going, uh, how are you going to teach somebody to be a strength coach when you can't walk functionally? And you, you could you would fall over in a pro agility and you barely get under six seconds if you if you actually didn't pull a hamstring on the way, you know? Yeah, Gates Gates is always at the last on that list of functional movements on, on a lot of uh, seminars and certifications. <laughs> Goes <laughs> yeah, squat, hinge, lunge, press, whatever, then gates like little little after usually the afterthought. Um, okay, so yeah, interesting. And I think that's so and I asked you that question a little bit, Kyle, based on, you know, I know, I knew about the safety bar supermax split squat being a big go-to, uh, but then, and then I've seen the contralateral circuit stuff. And so you, have you ever had a point in your time where you, I know in your jump training, you've talked about going from like single to double based on contact times. Yeah. Is that the main, the, the main portion that you have worked with that type of thing? Yeah. And, you know, when I do jumps from the, you know, when I say the accelerated, I, I'm talking about when the bands are hooked, you know, 10, 11 feet high, or they're accelerating people. And really, Joel, where that, that trans, 
you know transpired from was I had a motion analysis machine. It was a it was amazing tool with nine camera system, and I started analyzing sport, and I realized that there was nothing in the weight room I was doing that was as fast as as what they did in their second third step in sport, the speed of extension, even plyos didn't really come it got to the third, fourth step, but anything beyond that. So that's, and I, you know, this was 18, 17 years ago where I decided to lighten the load and by, and then I analyzed the single leg and it was still, when I lightened the load and hooked the bands to the ceiling, it was still slow compared to the double leg. And that's just where I came up with that assumption is this, and it was a $200,000 machine that told me this is not the same as that. You know what I mean? It was basic. It was the speed of hip extension. Everything was not the same. So, yeah. Um, and now, uh, you know, we can get into more but about the bilateral. Uh, you, you're just sitting here. I, I, again, I didn't get a good neural feedback. So, you know, talking with Dan Fichter, it was uh, I, I actually fixed that feedback when I'm done. And we can get into that, you know, how we fix that feedback. Um, in my opinion, when somebody does a bilateral jump so the double a double leg jump what no matter what plyometric it is it can be hurdle hops and hurdle hops are a go-to for me it actually screws up the neurological pattern in my opinion you get a negative feedback loop and then i just fix it as soon as they're done and we can talk about that later or at some point yeah no i think that'd be a good place to like at least hash out now just because i think that that's an important component of it in the sense of maybe this is where i'm coming from like um like bio like simple neurofeedback like um like do do a movement and touch your toes and then do it do another one and touch your toes again did you go into threat um is your body in threat or is it not and some people are naturally going to go into threat more easily on double versus single like based on probably what their strength is right like on a level or with dave i've just i haven't found one of my athletes that didn't go into threat with a double leg or get better responses from, let's just say, a split squat stance. You know, let's say you're going to do uh, the band accelerated from the ceiling and you stand there double leg side by side and then you check them and they're more of a threat. Uh, their flexibility decreases, their balance decreases. Then if you just split that, that foot and you can alternate them or, or not alternate them and they, they do the single leg uh, unilateral with a split stance, you don't go into that threat. That, that's across the board is what I've seen. Now, maybe I get a big time power lifter who that's all he knows and that, mm -hmm. gate, that, that pattern's better than, yeah, but none of my athletes I've, I've ever been able to see that. So then how do I fix that threat? Dan taught me. He just said, hey, just have a march. So as soon as we do a double leg, my, my kids will do a hurdle hop. As soon as they land, the next four steps are marching steps and it overemphasizes the cross crawl pattern and it takes them out of that threat as they're going to the next exercise. That makes sense. Or like the idea of, so, so basically if I could sum up what you're saying, I guess, I, I hope I don't get, didn't get things backwards in my head. I'm cause I'm running some experiences and anecdotes in my head through, as you're saying this, cause I've done like the Dave Delanov, um, probably mispronouncing his last name, the, his biofeedback book based off like the deadlift and doing Jefferson, the regular sumo, and then Jefferson. So basically, sagittal based, a frontal based, and a triplanar with the Jefferson. And I'm always in least threat with the Jefferson, like the triplanar one. Um, yes. I've had athletes. I, I've done it too with Olympic lifts, where and I, I'm trying not to rabbit trail this whole conversation. So I want to stay on this point not too long. Uh, but I've had athletes. This last year, I decided to do that with my Olympic lifts. Uh, once we got in more of the the primary point of the season, just to be very like just safe on what was happening to them 
neuro just trying to optimize the neurological response and i gave them like three different cleans they could do it's like you can do a clean you can do a snatch or you can do a clean with a split catch and a lot of guys with crappy spines like who just are like real like ramrod straight kind of like a lot of swimmers are or even like posterior tilted i guess you could say did better with the split catch neurologically because they can't tilt anteriorly as much for that double leg their brain their body doesn't like that they're like i don't like this on my back i'm gonna go into threat here and so i but so it so what you were saying was um like bilateral bilateral squatting put them into threat and you marched it out through the, yeah. the marching or is that, is that yep. what you're saying yeah that's exactly it so as soon as they get done with a squat or a double leg jump they'll just essentially do literally four reps and it clears that negative threat mm-hmm. pattern and and what you're doing in my opinion is giving them three lifts you're just finding or, or in your deadlift example you're just finding the least threatening part even though it's a bilateral you're finding the least threatening one that you're getting mm-hmm. feedback from that says go with that one that day does yeah. that make sense yes exactly yeah and i feel like that's like lifting based off your strength um, which for me is, is triplanar. And, and I like a lot of athletes, I think the more joint options you can use, like a single leg presents more joint options in a movement than a bilateral. So anyways, um, all that being said, uh, I like, yeah, Cam, Chad, I'd like to get it back to you guys a little bit with, in terms of just like, tell me more about, or, or cause maybe we can say like single leg is less threat, right? It's more functional, less threat, but less, you know, global response like that, that, like Calano and Triphasic, I think it was Triphasic who talked about like that hammer thrower, didn't even bench, but just did a bunch of other training, you know, got his jacked yeah. his squat up, and then the bench press goes up just by itself, like that that global m- magnitude you're getting. So I, yes. I I imagine we could stand on the common ground as saying like single leg, less threat, more functional, bilateral, you have more, um, there's more global power available, but you have to find something to do with it. Like you're, you and Dan are saying, you have to find some way to mitigate or navigate that so i guess that's would that be a good summary i think so yeah it's exactly you're listening to the just fly performance podcast brought to you by simply faster cool so okay with that said yeah uh, cam chat i'll turn it back over to you guys here uh, i'd like to share like you guys results and 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 thoughts of actually turning it over from that two and two to going i don't know how many weeks you guys did like six or eight or i i, I should have you probably wrote it in your email cam and so sorry if i forgot it but uh back to you guys on how that shook out chad you, you go ahead if you got anything okay <clears throat> yeah i'm you know with the unilateral obviously we've got these categories going unilateral bilateral and and um i think probably a lot of people um would classify unilateral as like a split squat a rear foot elevated split squat bulgarian squat whatever bulgarian lunge whatever you want to call it right uh lunging and so on a lot of times both feet are in you know are on the ground just like as cal was is explaining with his um with a safety bar split squat and you know he was 100 percent on getting getting the higher loads and i think that's a, a big component um just to cr- really i kind of looked at it in from the very beginning and where i was coming from when cam and i were talking were uh just to create some variability in the body and not and trying to i think it's pretty easy to get honed in on true bilateral um movements so feet side by side squatting type patterns right deadlifting deadlifting uh patterns um it's pretty easy to get honed in on those. At least I've seen a lot of people in the past that have 
really navigate it towards that direction and kind of look as we'll loosely, I guess, categorize the unilateral exercises as um, accessory. And, and I'm guilty. I've done it myself. And so therefore you don't load it up as much, you know, step ups and so on. We, we know them all right. So um, just trying to, and then, so looking at trying to create some variability and really increasing load in those, we'll just say split positions. Um, and Kyle's obviously well documented on doing those things and had great, has had great success. And from there so really going from that uh to the true unilateral um plyometric jumping hopping bounding type exercises early on a good example would be like the altus uh, rudiment series that you would start with uh you know those just those low amplitude hops you know right foot to right foot and so on left foot to left foot and just going in these going forward backward side to side uh going side out, outside, going side, inside, things like that. Um, and just progressing to, into maybe some bounding where they're and working from extensive to intensive. And from what I've seen over the past, just from some teams I've worked with starting in that manner and then progressing to more intense unilateral jumping, of course, doing the weight room exercises as well, along with some bilateral exercises in the weight room. But, um, staying on the staying on the unilateral jumping plyometric work uh i f i felt like it's i can't i can't say i pro can prove it right but it's i felt like there was a, a great uh tissue resili resiliency built uh just from doing that just from the joints especially in the lower leg uh i, I can think of examples where guys are in practice and in, in football practice and you know they go up for a ball and they land and they come down you know you can always get in those awkward positions on landings and land on one leg and the guy hops up and you would think that had to blow a knee out <laughs> but yet it did or an ankle and yet it didn't and um i would like to think that doing that type of work gave that guy some uh, preparation and to possibly uh, mitigating some of that injury potential and uh you know again can't prove that but just looking at it and and looking at what it's done for change of direction over the past um and just using that using the unilateral type plyometric jumping exercises as creating some uh, a variability but also kind of the way i just i explain it in, in simple terms is we want to build a better spring and so let's build a better spring. And then when we move to transition to bilateral uh, plyometric jumping exercises, hopefully we can put more force into the ground. We can absorb more force. We're really prepping ourselves to absorb more force and therefore be able to apply more force. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, for, for me, just to hop in real quick, I think, you know, um, what Cal was talking about with hormonal response, I, I totally understand that. I agree with that 100%. I think with me looking at this idea of starting with a base of unilateral strength and power and then progressing into more of an emphasis on bilateral, I'm taking a skill-centric view of the whole thing. So I'm talking about progressing from a skill standpoint, and I'm looking at all the work we're doing from the field into the weight room. So if we're talking about generating types of speeds and forces that we might want in athletic maneuvers, I'm not worried about that in the weight room as much. I'm going to do that on the field with the athletes. So um, for me, if we're looking at any periodization based model, whether it's, you know, if we're talking basic traditional periodization or block periodization, it doesn't really matter which one we're looking at. Every general prep period basically has pretty similar standards and principles applied to it. 
right? We want to build a general physical training base of strength, power, speed, endurance, coordination, tissue integrity, mobility, flexibility, using a wide array of general motor abilities and skills. And we're generally at the beginning, we're thinking intensity is going to be a little bit lower because we're getting them back into training coming off the season or something like that. Uh, while well, the volumes can be a little bit higher or more of an, in an optimal range, right? And really, at this point, we want to focus on tissue quality. That's big. So we want to think about hypertrophy and local muscular endurance. So I think, for me, looking at this, if we want reduced intensities with uh, an emphasis on hypertrophy, local muscular endurance, I think it makes a lot of sense in my mind to use unilateral focus and unilateral emphasis during these early periods in the training training year, which could be six to eight weeks, it doesn't have, to, or even shorter, it could be four weeks maybe, right? Just depending on what what our timeline looks like or what we're doing. And I'm thinking field first, weight room second. So if we're looking in a general prep period, if we're using a short to long progression, at this point in the year, we're using maybe like 10 to 20 yards when we're doing sprints. We're not maybe we're not going over that, you know, including the skill guys. Uh, maybe we're doing some speed technique work that might be longer, but we're, that'll be more you know, extensive plyometric type activities or something like that to get us ready for intensive speed work later down the line during our specialized training block, right? And if we're doing change of direction activities or open reactive game work, we're going to use smaller field spaces here. So while that stuff is at a lower intensity, we can use the weight room and use jump work to help build a unilateral base and unilateral coordination in multiple planes, right? Because in the weight room, if we're using unilateral strength work, we just talked about it, it's naturally multi-planar just because you're on one leg, more degrees of freedom are involved. So we're getting them ready to coordinate on a, on a emphasizing a single limb in multiple planes. That's a coordination base right there. But then when, like Chad was saying, if we're doing something that's more of like a rudiment series, using unilateral jumps, we can go forward, sideways, backwards, right? We can do different directions and different combinations, whether we're going maybe zigzags or doing right angle hops or something like that, right? We can do that stuff earlier. So while we're building the resiliency we want to see on one leg, not just from a strength standpoint in the weight room, but also from a power standpoint where we're teaching them to absorb force on one leg in these weird, awkward direction changes. Then when we move to our specialized prep periods later on in the training year, we're going to emphasize that stuff on the field. So the unilateral dominance will take over on the field, right? So we're going to shift. It's going to kind of inverse where all the unilateral emphasis is going to be mostly on the field with really intensified sprint work where we're going over 20 yards. So the speeds are going to be really high. Forces on ground contact are going to be really high. We're going to emphasize uh, more intense change of direction, right? More intense deceleration efforts. If we're using open reactive games, we're going to use larger spaces at that point. So they're going to have to deal with more chaos. So that stuff's going to amplify itself through the field work. Whereas what are we going to do if we think about concentrated loading? Right. So if we think about everything as like concentrated loading is going to give us a better adaptation effect. Well, if we're concentrated loading power and speed on the field, then how do we support that in the weight room? Bilateral activities, right? Because the power output is going to be higher. The speed off the ground is going to be higher. And so now everything is just fast and powerful altogether. And that's really the, the, the idea that, that Chad and I were talking about when, when we thought of it in terms of keeping a concentrated uh, adaptation stimulus at all times in the year while we're emphasizing force and accumulation maybe we're thinking mostly uh, a unilateral with a gradual shift to bilateral and then when we're thinking power and speed we're going to support that with high power and high forces in the weight room using bilateral activities and bilateral jumps to match the power and speed qualities we want to see 
um, in support in terms of concentrating just the neurological load on the body. That's, that was my, my mindset with it. Sure. I'm, I'm packing that real quick. I, a couple of things in my head as I, I kind of shift to, so there's some things we can all pitch in on here. Um, so que- I think questions would kind of be this. Um, my first one is the idea in a very track and field centric, but I think it's where we're a lot of people are headed is like training. Once we get past the GPP, you know, however long it takes us to get through the GPP phase, that, that basic get back, get, you know, a lot of variability, get basic work capacity, those types of things. We want to be improving strength and power as fast as we can. And ideally, you know, the more specific to, uh, the, the KPIs of the sport, the better, um, what um you know given that you you know the bilateral and this i think can maybe you know merge our own our worlds here a little bit but like given that we would see a little bit more a little bit more potential for power output in bilateral um you know you said you're going like four to six weeks with the like do you consider the whole time you're emphasizing unilateral do you consider that the gpp like or is there is there power is that fit the power phase too do you understand what i'm saying like yeah. Does that make oh, sense? Yeah, absolutely. So I, so if you think of it as, uh, in my mind, this is how I'm thinking of it, where if we think of it really basically like we have general prep period, special prep period, competition period, or something like that, right? So even in a team sport, let's say football, right? We could have a general prep period in the off season. We could have a special prep period. Then we're either in spring ball or we're in training camp or something like that. That would then we'd think about that as uh, sort of our competition period at that point. Um, so, for me, I'm really thinking the whole time we're emphasizing unilateral, that's really our general prep period, but we can start to include maybe in the weight room some bilateral work during that time too as we're transitioning into uh, primarily focusing on power and speed during our special prep period. If Got that it. makes sense. Yeah, oh, 100%. Yeah, so I mean, that because to me that, if we're trying to look at things, obviously there's going to be sliding sliding shades of gray throughout you know everything <laughs> but right. if we can like if it's like okay gpp single leg spp bilateral like the emphasis or where the, the power is coming from i think that um you know that that makes it a little bit easier to understand on a level um do you other uh cal chad do you guys have any thoughts or uh, take on that um yeah i think we're uh i mean we all come to agreement that that uh, as chad said with the variable and jumping like i think the big thing is, is that we have some variety so that uh, that receiver can land awkward and, and survive, you know. And if you get just too much, too much of one focus, the compensation patterns that run through the body are, I mean, especially in these elite athletes, will adapt so fast, in my opinion. And if we don't have that variety, those compensations appear, and that's when things start breaking, in my opinion, at the, at the highest level. Because, I mean, I can track those things, right, um, with the tissue and, and the soft tissue work and various things. Um, you know, I, I, and I, I, I guess getting back to double leg, like if you if you take a look at your loading, and, and when I do single leg, let's say I'm doing a single leg squat, I do it with hands held. I, I hold my hands on something, right? My athletes will hold a bar and they'll do the safety split squat. People are like, well, what about balance? I'm like, well, I mean, I, I don't know if um, this safety bar split squat's good for balance, period. I, I'll be honest with you, I'm not sure balance is uh, trained with your foot on the ground and your head not moving other than in one plane of motion. To my mm-hmm. understanding, balance is actually worked a little bit better 
when your body's moving and your head's moving. You know what I mean? That that's just my beliefs and, and some things that I've seen and, and coaches that have have pointed out some balance testing with me. So unless your head's moving through through the plane of motion, your body's working, you can't necessarily. It's not going to transfer into the balance that we want with sports and the, the kinesthetic awareness that you need to have. So then I, I hold on to something with single leg squats because. And then if you quantify the load, so you 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 can get power and speed and, and any loading parameter with single leg, in my opinion, you, you just can't be holding dumbbells. Yeah, degrees of freedom. A, right. You just yeah. can't be holding dumbbells with your foot on a bench doing rear, rear elevated. And I like those lifts. And do it with max power because you don't have the stability. You know what I'm saying? You literally don't have the stability to do that. Um to get max power is what I found. You downregulate a little bit. And also with single leg, I, I think people have to understand the loading parameters. You actually have to count the rest of the body as a load. So let's say you're back squatting, you know, 400 pounds and you're back squatting your body weight with two limbs. Well, if you go double leg, if you go, you know, a single leg with 200 pounds worth of dumbbells, you're still squatting more because you got a majority of your body weight on that single leg still so so the power and the load ratio you have to quantify you know what i'm saying to to make sure that you're in the power ranges and i do i do that personally for myself so um and i make sure that the speed parameters are correct or the power parameters with single leg but um i don't think in any way you're going to be hurting your athlete by doing the bilateral in any way i don't want you know i don't want people to think that you just, in my opinion, you have to fix it because I still do bilateral jumps. I still do a lot of bilateral things. It just has to be, in my opinion, you have to fix it, take them out of that, you know, that, that, that negative biofeedback, and then you can load them. It just takes a lot more work as a coach, and it might not be good in your setting because, you know, I have a very specific setting. Like, you can't do, no one in the world right now can do the lifts I do because they're in my weight room. Right. That's it. Like you can't take my program and do it anywhere else because I have all the right equipment and all my stuff. You know what I mean? So it's very specific to say the least. I want to come hang out in your weight room someday, Cal. <laughs> I have open door policy. I probably shouldn't say that, but you can keep that in. So <laughs> It's almost like um, in some way, maybe you could say, because as you were mentioning, Cal, with like the, the safety bar split squat, you have your hands on something like you're taking away degrees of freedom to add stability to the system. So the output can be higher. Like, right, and, right, and yeah. in a way, it's almost like we're working, um, even, even outside, you could even zoom out a little bit more, even outside of the idea of, of single leg, functional, bilateral, more power, more, right. more global. Right. It's just, you, you're working at more degrees of freedom to less degrees of freedom in the right. GPP. You have a lot more, you move less, less can be a single leg. If you are locked in and you, your body feels safer to push harder and you're more stable to push harder. And then you can get right. those global outputs. Right. And, and the point that these guys have made, just the variability. So you, you do a power phase in a double leg and then you do an assisted band or a assisted step up with a power. Like, even though it's the same load and they're, let's say they're, the hips are traveling at the same speed as in the squat in extension, you still are getting a variability, right, of tension running through the body to support that. So that's, I think that's the big thing we have to, to realize that if you just back squat and you do 10 sets and that's great, but you got, it's better to do five and then another assisted lift with a single leg, you know what I mean, movement. And because of the tension that's running through the body, I think we can all agree that we can't put people in these, these, these one motions that just constantly drive the same compensation pattern. Yeah. 
I was actually going to say I wanted to tack this on. <laughs> I could do this because I'm the host. No, just kidding. Uh, but, but like even when you were talking about doing the the A skips to march it out, I remember just thinking back when I was in tra- college track, like 21, my coach was telling, talking about just doing after the weight room, going out to the field and just doing sprints on the field about 70, 80%. Like it's, com- it's almost like it's in the, the ether a little bit. It's like because people, people know they feel better the next day when they do that <laughs> to like get out of that. That, that pure bilateral, you did this enough times program. Um, so anyways, uh, Cam, Cam, Chad, you guys have anything to add to that before we kind of move along? You got anything, Chad? Yeah, I don't, you know, I think that, um, I guess I, I don't want people to misunderstand. And um, I know Cam and I just through discussion have talked about this is, Clearly, we're talking about unilateral exercise, but um, and and trying and of course trying to increase over progressively overload and so on. But there's not an abandonment of bilateral exercise, so it, it doesn't mean that it, it's not in there and not and doesn't exist. It just may not be emphasized. It's not a major emphasis, but yet so the volumes may be lower in the weight. And I'm speaking through the, in the weight room, um, maybe to be, in the beginning. And there's maybe more of an emphasis on the unilateral exercises, which may be a split squat or a rear foot elevated and so on. Right. Uh, I guess pre- up to preference, but um, yeah. And just cause I, I look at it that way. I don't want to abandon anything. I mean, I want, I want both to come up and, and increase progressively overload and uh, really just get better at both. And then creating some, um, I guess the unilateral focus with, I look at it uh, through the jumping, uh, through the various jumps and uh, of course sprinting. Something just as Cam was, was pointing out just looking at the whole picture, the global picture of where we want to go from the beginning to the end. And sprinting has got to be a, a huge piece of that. And, uh, just, uh, you know, I mean, there's, there's studies out there that have compared unilateral and bilateral exercise. And of course they go all in on, you know, one group goes all in on unilateral, one group goes all in on mm-hmm. bilateral. And, you know, there's various findings out there. And, um, you know, I, I was just looking at some stuff. It was like, there's a belief that there may be a reduced neural drive, um, that the legs don't really maximally activate when working together. So in a bilateral exercise and, um, you know, it's so you find some of that kind of stuff out there too. Um, clearly we all know we can get stronger in bilateral exercises, but, um, you know, and then just with the muscles, just, there seems to be, um, like more force there, there. There's more tension in that, in that single leg, even though that foot may be on the ground in the split squat, but that front leg is, is doing more of the work. So, yeah, I don't think you can, you know, for these, for people listening, I think Chad, to your point, like they have to realize if they're going to go back to bilateral, I don't, as you said, you can't abandon it in your unilateral phase because you're not going to get the most benefits if you haven't done it neurologically out right. of the, 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 the next phase when you go to a bilateral emphasis, you know what I mean? So, so yeah. you, if, if this is in your future, you can't completely abandon it in any way because you're not going to, you're not going to grab the skill and receive the full benefits. Let's say, as Cam said, maybe you do a two or three week block, right? You're, yeah. If you haven't done it, it's going to take you a week or a few workouts in some cases to get to get really good and then receive benefits. By then you might be switching to another parameter. You know what I mean? So yeah. I, again, yeah, 
point to you in people's programming, they can't abandon it. They have to stay with it because your body won't retain the qualities of it. Yeah, That's, just, uh, to, just to maintain the motor, right? The proper motor patterns and the coordination of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, I think that's an excellent point, Cal. I'm really glad you brought that up because, yeah, we're talking about what we're emphasizing in these phases, not that we're completely unidirectionally loading it with only that. So I'll give you, a, I'll give you an exact example of something I might do during a unilateral emphasized phase is I might do a complex of, of a lift and a jump put together on a lower body day. But maybe I'm doing uh, my, my primary lift in that complex is going to be a unilateral lift. Maybe it's a Bulgarian or a split squat or something like that. Then I might follow it up with a unilateral jump pattern. Let's just say for sake of simplicity, it's a unilateral vertical jump where you take off one leg, land on two, right? But then I'm going to include uh, a series of bilateral jumps in that complex as well, right? Because those are, if we look at even just like a French contrast idea, like if we want to have a faster jump, we'll do it with two legs. So now even when we're emphasizing unilateral in that phase, we do unilateral lift, unilateral jump, because those are going to be lower, right? And then we can do two or even just one bilateral jump variation in there to make sure that that coordination is still happening where we're, we're getting used to that bilateral takeoff, but we're still, the global emphasis of the phase is going to be, uh, we're emphasizing unilateral strength and power, but we're still including bilateral activities. And then in our auxiliary, what I, what I actually do is I'll do like a, uh, in my auxiliary uh, section or accessory section, I might take the guidelines from triphasic training on like the high volume day where it's a little bit lower intensity in terms of the overload, but we're keeping that those slower tempos in there. I'll do that in my accessory work with bilateral lifts during a unilateral phase. So we're still greasing the groove of that bilateral pattern during the unilateral emphasized phases. That way it's there for when we want to load it later in terms of like now we're really going to emphasize max power with the bilateral jumps. We want you to jump as high or as far as you can, or if we're doing like a hurdle hop, do it as fast off the ground as you can. And in the weight room, we're going to switch to where now the primary lift is going to be like a squat or a deadlift or something where um, they've already done that in the accessory from the previous phase. So they're used to it already. Now we're just loading it more with either strength or power. Yeah. I mean, yeah, like with that point, I guess I've had junior high strength coaches call or email me and say, Hey Cal, uh, you did triphasic with, you know, seventh and eighth graders. And I'm like, Oh no. Right. Cause it's pretty intense stuff. And like, yeah, we <laughs> super just maximal use- phase. Yeah. Right. <laughs> he said, well, we use light loads and, uh, and, uh, you know, they did the eccentric movement and they learned it bilaterally, you know, the squat really well. And then they held the position the next phase and we went lightweight and I'm like, well, it's not really triphasic, but it, it, it's the concept, right? But it's not heavy loads. And I'm going, and they learned it faster, he thought. And I'm like, you know, that to your point, Cam, it's just, if you're greasing that groove and, and focusing on those movements, then that's definitely something to keep into your unilateral phase before you switch in. Like it's, you know, and if you got a coaching eye and many people that might not have the 20 years of experience that we all have of coaching might not see that that transfers quicker, but trust us, it does. It transfers. If you practice that skill just a little bit more. You're listening to the just fly performance podcast brought to you by simply faster. Uh, Yeah, I agree. That's, that's, that's definitely a good point. I mean, yeah, like even in, I, I do a lot of like, single leg like iso lunges in early phases but even then we're doing uh slow tempo a lot of slow tempo bilateral barbell stuff just because we're going to be doing this stuff later on you know it's like you can't you can't ignore that um 
Okay, so so question here that I think is would be a good one is is tissue um, the tissues um, the way that tissues are adapting with single leg work because like um, like like Chad had said and I think we all know like when we're doing unilateral work it's more a little bit more on the leg respectively each leg and probably a little bit less respectively on the spine uh, with lighter loads potentially I guess depends on the exact setup but is there any way that you guys are looking at like i mean the, the tissue like are, are this is this advantage that maybe we're able to put the the tissues of the under the legs of the legs under higher tension early on to get better adaptations like that and as we move forward is that a thing i don't i know uh, cal you do a lot of stuff with like the t you've mentioned stuff with the tmg and and things there so i'd be interested in your opinions on that well for that lower shank i mean really let's let's be honest the foot's the only thing touching the ground and uh, I stress I stress that foot a lot to be able to handle those forces. Uh, obviously, the spring ankle exercises you know about with uh, Chris that Chris Corfus came up with um, are the, my fav- favorite ones right now. You know, I, I think the big thing, and people say, well, people have talked to me about about these spring ankle exercises and then what they are is they're very very stressful right um you, you basically are on the, your toes you're in a deep squat position and I, and i mean i have my females that weigh about 150 and i'm i'm too i'm well have you seen me in a while i'm only 180 now joel i haven't but, seen you in a while let's say i'm north of 250 just <laughs> just for principle and then uh and i'm pushing all my weight down and they're holding me in a deep squat position on their toes on the the balls of their feet right and uh and people say well i do foot exercises well i'm like yeah but okay then get up here and do this and and they can't hold it for one second and i have my females that'll hold it for 20 and you're sitting here going uh I just think the, the foot's not strong enough. And, and I'll be honest with you, under different parameters. And, and honestly, one of my, you know, with, with Chad talking about how he changes the jumping and variable, uh, one of my favorite movements with that lower shank is uh, obviously those ankle exercises. But, Joel, running in circles. So as you run and, and you have the circles laid out on the ground, uh, in my opinion, that transfers forces through variation and at, at really high loads. And you see an athlete with bad ankles or, or, or let's say they can't absorb that force well enough in a circle, they, they actually get higher, right? Huh. When they they adjust their, their angles in, in the depth at which they can turn that corner around these circles. So I, I really love running the circles. You know, let's say we're just doing a 10-yard sprint to a circle, run around the circle twice or once, and then finish with another 10-yard sprint. To me, that cornering ability with your ankle, because you hit one way, you hit the one foot is on the inside. The other forces are on the outside as you're cornering. Um, that's how I like my progressions with, with a lot of the lower shank uh, or the one legged stuff. And then again, I do, uh, Joel, I've had people fly. I wouldn't say from other countries, but they wanted to see it, but I've had people fly in to see my athletes do. So all my squatting is done on my toes. Right. So, and I don't do back squat. Let's say any single leg lift step up, lunge everything is done on their toes okay because in my opinion that's where sports are played even if their heel hits the ground right the only animal that runs on their heels is an elephant and none of my athletes run like that you know what i mean so we're gonna squat on our toes and i was actually corrected by an elephant expert on this supposedly where <laughs> i mean an elephant heel- had a heel <laughs> yeah i know right <laughs> elephant expert of gate uh the heel actually hits the ground in the elephant but it's just the fat pad Okay, so it's not actually the bone that's hitting the ground. So I stand corrected. No animal actually runs 
on their heels, you know, but my point is, is uh, so I do all my squats on my toes and, and things like that to facilitate that tension to help these athletes apply that force. Um, and, and unilaterally, yes, that's, that's basically why I do a majority of my stuff that way. Now people say, Hey, I'm squatting on my toes. Ah, my, the bilaterally, I'm like, ah, you do whatever, but I just know that you're not going to apply as much force. You know I mean, you're not applying stress. If you're squatting unilaterally, you may do it in some phase or whatever it may be, but you're not applying stress, whether it's in the speed phase or the power phase or the strength phase. So there's my, my little bit of uh, my thoughts on that. Yeah. With the, uh, for, oh, sorry, go ahead, yeah. No, no, for me, it's just, I, I think if I try to get, um, if I'm, if I'm trying to prep my athletes tissues for what they're going to do on the field, I try to keep it on the field as best I can in terms of, uh, stressing the tissues in similar fashion. So, for me, I, I really like the idea of that Berkoshansky extensive jump protocol where, you know, we're focusing on submaximal power, where we're really emphasizing technique and helping the athlete find that muscle tension, relaxation, sequencing, the proper timing of force application, um, especially with the unilateral jump work like Chad was talking about before. Uh, so if they can learn how to time their force application, and if I tell them to do like two two, you know, forward hops on one leg, and then you got to stop and land on one leg and decelerate and keep your balance and all that stuff, just all that control, that eccentric control when they're doing that as well. Uh, for me, I think just from what I've been doing um, in the last six weeks of trying this stuff uh, here with the athletes I've got now, they all basically talk about how great their ankles are feeling, their feet feel, you know, they're not get, they're not waking up as much with, the, the tight ankles, like the plantar fasciitis type of feeling or anything. They're just starting to, to build that spring like Chad was talking about. And you start to see it come to light after a couple weeks. And um, I know Altus is really big on doing, like really training the ankle with hopping type drills. I know uh, JB Marin talks about that, where you got to use extensive springy type actions to really um, stress the ankle in the way it's going to operate and support action maneuvers. And so for me, I like to hit it there. And then I think just using unilateral strength exercise in the weight room, I think, you know, the callus point from the ankle, I don't know as much, but I think maybe around the knee and the hip, you can start to help uh, develop some kind of tissue integrity just from a coordination standpoint, like a neural firing standpoint where, um, you know, there's going to be a lot more time under tension, even though the load is not super heavy. So for me, I see it as like local muscular endurance and just adding some localized fatigue there. So for example, I've had people do, a set of three on each leg with maybe like 70, 80% of their Bulgarian split squat max if we're doing that lift without the hand supported for this specific example. And it takes them about a minute to get through three controlled reps on each leg, right? So it's a, it's a good amount of time under tension where they're, they have to move slow or else they're going to lose their balance in that activity without the hand supporting. So you could use it that way, I think, from uh, just creating greater local muscular fatigue, like Chad was talking about before, like that leg that's on the ground is going to be taking the brunt of the actual muscular activity. Whereas what we're doing on the field is that we're trying to prep the tissues in an elastic component, like a submaximal elastic contraction rather than just like a, an actual concentric muscle contraction or whatever it might be. So we're, we're training more of the, the muscular tendon complex on the field. Whereas in the weight room, we're thinking mostly just muscular. I'm glad, I'm glad you mentioned that. Yeah, like the, it brings me back to a study, and I don't remember. Um, I don't remember if it was like my last book or like a, an article I was, I was looking this stuff up for, or maybe it's the, maybe it's the book on the lower leg and feet I'm, I'm working on and writing. But it was talking about specific, uh, like the specific tendon adaptations in fencing with like the lead lunging leg versus the rear lunging leg in, in the patellar tendon, and there's like 
it's extremely specific how tendons adapt. And it's obviously not weighted, but it's very forceful and repeated, right? And and how much adaptation we get just out of this dynamic stuff. And I actually, I really like, um, I, I love it all. It's all really good points. I, I, I like, uh, I resonate a little bit with, um, with Cal's example of the circle running, like the short circle running. I saw somebody post a video of two guys just running around a circle of probably like an eight foot radius, I want to say, trying to chase each other, like, like play tag. And you just saw these ankles going through these crazy like pronations and like to, to, to hang on to these curves. And I, I was doing, I fill in sometimes if, if we don't have enough doubles when I have like my tennis guys do a little mirror drill before their lift, like agility stuff. And sometimes there's not another person. So I'll, I'll jump in and I'll be an agility, you know, I'll, I'll mirror somebody or I'll have to have them chase me. And it's always my ankles and my feet feel like, because I don't play basketball anymore like I used to. I feel like my ankles and my feet are about to rip off. Everything else is fine. <laughs> uh, but it's, but I'm just constantly reminded that those are the links that, uh, and it's elastic and it's, and it's uh, from the ground up, you know. And so I'm glad you guys mentioned that dynamic nature of tissue preparation. Because I do think we can zoom in too much and try to do too much sometimes just from that strength, uh, strength only element. Yeah, just just to hop in real quick, I don't want to uh, monotonize the time, but I just I had found like an interesting stat line from a research paper in regards to elastic loading on a unilateral hurdle hop, for example. And basically, what they did was they took sixty percent of the counter movement jump max, and that's where they set the hurdle height. So if you have like a thirty-five inch vertical, um, they would set the hurdle at like twenty inches, basically. And from there, they had these athletes perform unilateral hurdle hops over that 20 we'll just for sake of example say it's a 20 inch hurdle and you know you can get up to three times your body weight of force on ground contact in like 0.25 seconds right so um in terms of the stress at the ankle in that elastic environment you're talking like you know you could do like over 500 pounds of force on ground contact which you know like how are you going to replicate that in the weight room in terms of prepping the ankle for sport specific actions in terms of all the force they have to absorb on that one foot and that's why, for me, I try to attack the uh, the ankle complex more on the field. Yeah, I totally agree. When I was um, when I was twenty one, uh, that was the year I, I I set my high jump PR at seven feet, and I was doing uh, single leg hurdle hops over thirty nine inch track hurdles, which was a little dangerous because you know those Jeez. things are gonna. <laughs> but wow. but but my ball, I was so strong through my feet, and then like five years later, my lifts had all gone up in the weight room, but I wasn't high jumping as well, and my stride length was down. And I think a lot of it was a lot of that, just a little bit of that specific strength and coordination wasn't quite as good as it was before. And I'm, I'm constantly reminded of that. <laughs> Sometimes I think about those old, those old plyometric workouts and I'm just like, man, I can't believe I did that. Um, but that was, that was huge. Cause I wasn't like the fastest guy. I wasn't have the most horsepower, but that was something that I did really well that helped me to do the athletic things I did accomplish. And I was, um, so those, it was a lot of fun too, single leg hurdle hop. So no, I, I believe it. The the output there is pretty unreal in the lower through the lower leg. By the way, um, yeah. So so last question. I know we're we're getting late over on the East Coast Central Time. I'm still early on Pacific Time, but uh, you know, Cameron, I know that as you were going through this, making these changes, you've you've picked up some some ideas and observations and things from switching that two two to more of a a unilateral block and then going bilateral and and uh, yeah could we just uh finish this off with a little bit of your your parting thoughts on that process for you sure yeah so most of this uh, i'm trying to take measurements as i go so this is relatively new in what i'm doing because it, it, it came from the conversation with chad right so 
Um, I've been trying it out right now. What I'm trying to do is an eight-week block of unilateral emphasis followed by an eight-week block of bilateral emphasis. And the research I was looking at in terms of unilateral adaptations, and specifically from a power standpoint, using little unilateral power activities, uh, was about, you know, in a six to 12-week uh, sort of period, that's where a lot of the research was, was founded. So I was like, perfect, let me try eight weeks see what happens here. So I'm, I'm tracking numbers as I go and I'm seeing changes in things like squat jump, counter movement jump, um, depth jump from a 12 inch box. And I'm tracking uh, RSI as well and just kind of seeing what happens there. And, but a lot of it is uh, just coming from communication with the athletes themselves and talking about how they're feeling and how they feel uh, from their perspective, what's happening to their bodies when they're doing athletic activities. So in my program all year long, we're doing, we're, we're, we're always going to keep field work in all the time. Um, we'll do a short to long emphasis when it comes to linear sprint work. Um, but I'm going to keep some aspect of change of direction work and gameplay in there all year long as well. So I'll start with very simple games and shorter, smaller spaces and progress to more complex games where now they're just, they're free flowing, moving a lot similar to how they would actually perform in sport. Um, so just talking to them and seeing how they're feeling in terms of the on-field movements, because that's where we want them to feel better on the field, right? So, um, and just in general, how their bodies are feeling when they wake up and things like that. And so far, what we're seeing, which is interesting, because you know, talking about um, how athletes will uh, start to come out of that sort of panic freakout mode by doing things like marching and skipping, is just this unilateral emphasis. Everybody, pretty much across the board, is talking about how. Their bodies are feeling fresher. They're just feeling more, you know, activated and, and basically athletic, which is kind of interesting for them to, to talk about, is that they don't feel stiff. They don't feel rigid. They actually feel more fluid, more efficient with everything that they're doing from the warm-up to the field work to the weight room. And I think uh, what, it's, what it's doing is just allowing some a little bit of unloading in terms of, like, actual absolute overload in terms of, like, how much load is on them in the weight room and things like that. But it's allowing them to explore their degrees of freedom a little bit more, build some coordination. So they're all talking about how they just feel they feel like their balance is better, their control is better on one leg. And uh, you, you see it as well in terms of how they're performing. And uh, really, so far, it's just about they're just talking about how they're, they're feeling overall just more athletic and more efficient. And, and for me, obviously, from a psychological standpoint, that's what I want to hear. But obviously, I want to continue to track some objective data just to see what happens um, objectively as well too. So subjective is great, but I want to have both sides of the coin and be able to report both of them. Right on. No, that's, that's good stuff, man. And it just makes me continue to think back of what Cal said of the idea. And I, I've always felt this way, like just too much this of the same stimuli bilaterally, you know, you gotta, it's, that's, I feel like the thing that, that makes you feel a little bit worse. You know, you have to find ways to wash it out or strategically put in or build up to it. You know, like finding ways to make athletes always come out athletic or finding ways to wash out negative um, neural effects and things like that. So, uh, yeah, Joe, like I, I always question once sometime if, if there's not that variety, then then I, I can imagine that part of the tendon, it depends on big it is, can become too stiff at some point. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Because it, and then that stiffness, yeah. that too much stiffness, then it's it's not working. Um, the way I view it as is really the the, the tendon and the uh, muscle or or a, a two spring system. And essentially, what happens is if one spring becomes too t 
intense, it destroys the other mm -hmm. one. And that's where you get, you know, your muscle pulls. And in some cases, I think that that can be the, the problem with the a constant non-variety program mm -hmm. is that those tendons are are just become too stiff in certain areas and then you get inflammation or tendonitis and then but yet you know you have to have it and mm -hmm. let's say an olympic lifting style program where you're constantly squatting no matter mm -hmm. what you know what i mean no matter what mm -hmm. but you do change the variables up too well there's 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 two different camps there's 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 a camp where you just do the main lifts and there's camps where you do assisted lifts you know and uh actually i heard that from a, a chinese uh, the weightlifting coach when they were building their program and they they began to realize that the assisted seemed to be the best way because they could uh they had less training result or injuries per se mm -hmm. everybody every program worked it's just they with the variability of using the assisted lifts with the variables and, and to me that's why i was realized at that point that maybe a, a you know a single lift mode whether you're going to do 10 sets of back squats wasn't optimal for athletes just because the lack of variety and the, the reduction of injury within the training itself i think exists you know so um but that i think tendons do become too stiff at some point especially um and i don't know what the counter always is is it more or muscle strength which it, it should be because then more muscle strength could actually stretch the tendon but who knows what the tolerance load is on all this you know um it's it, that's always a quick question i don't know if that's been if that's been looked into very much yeah i, I think just just no, just real quick, to, just to say, uh, he, Cal just made me think of something where, you know, I think when if you're doing like a lot of stuff over and over and over, you can prove, you can show that you're building robust tissue, but I think there's a difference between robust and resilient tissue, right? So resilient is adaptable tissue. It can adapt to multiple different things and stay injury-free, and I think that's what we want, and I think that's where adding that variation in mm -hmm. uh, really helps with resiliency versus robustness. Yeah. Yeah. Or even, you know, in my track career, like it's always, everyone knows this. Well, hopefully most people, but like the basketball players who roll onto the court in, they get to a basketball season, February, March, roll on the court, high jump a PR, and then progressively get worse when all they did for jumping was high jump. That one pattern over, 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 over. Because <laughs> the system is just like, F you, I'm not going to do this anymore. I, I'm, you know, there's certain parts are getting too tight, too much micro trauma in the joint, like not enough variability. And, um. No, it's it, it's good. It's it's good stuff to get into. I I've confused myself in research, really kind of digging through the exact dynamics of this tendon got stiffer. What did that mean for the muscle? But I know I do. I, I I'm totally right there with you, Cal. I'm glad you shared that part, man. And I think yeah, that's a it's, it's I don't know if it's a question that'll be answered to be honest with you, because everybody adapts differently, right? Mm -hmm. Um, whether you're you know if you're you're your quad tendons adapting, but is it adapting differently because you're but can absorb force or, or you lack various, you know, density, whatever, who knows, you know, I, I don't know. There's so many variables with the human organism. It's, well, I don't know if we'll ever get it figured out, but uh, I think people need to start looking at that for sure. Yeah. Well, along, along those lines, I've been in the, I've been in the footwork, football world primarily. And so just things that I've seen and, I, and I'm a big, uh, I go off observation a lot. And so just things I've seen, especially like, you know, you're looking at offensive linemen and, um, you know, they're, they're clearly in a, in a bilateral position and, and most of the time and, and they can get into that split type variation as well. But there's so many times that they squat well, for the most part, they're in a true bilateral um, squat position and they, they will typically do that pretty well. 
as soon as you make them do a unilateral or some type of split position, I mean, they, they can't handle any type of load and they're, you know, they don't have the coordination for that and you'll see them lose their balance and things like that. And going back to earlier, what Cal was saying, uh, I do quite a bit of RPR as well. Maybe not as definitely have not done as much as he has, but, um, I've seen that repetitiveness of the bilateral patterns, whether somebody has been Olympic lifting a lot or somebody has squatted a lot, there's those types of exercises and just that repetitiveness of those exercises has definitely creates, um, poor motor, poor, uh, I'm sorry, <laughs> poor contractions. And, and, um, especially in the outer hip, I've noticed that through the, through the outer hip glute meat area has been has exposed a lot. I've seen a lot of problems exposed there. Um, well, yeah. And yeah. so I mean, how do we know t- too, and, and, and possibly kind of going, jumping back to the, to the stiffness portion, the tendon stiffness portion, possibly that could c- kind of contribute to some of that stiffness as well, or poor, an inappropriate amount of stiffness, mm-hmm. I guess I should say. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, as you know, with that, uh, with a bilateral and in my opinion with what's going on is, is that, uh, that hip instability that, that too much of it creates, as you said, with that lack of, with that lack of balance. And, uh, to, to your point, I mean, with, especially with linemen, I've seen such bad, like at bad ankles many times, right. That, that, that kind yeah. of probably shut down that, those hip muscles. But w- what we've found in, uh, with, uh, with that is that I find that people just spend too much time, whether they're training bilaterally and they just go straight ahead. They, they haven't had that variability. And, and what I find in those situations is the external rotators, of the hips are shut down with these guys yeah. for, for the stability. Right. And, you know, one of the exercises I'll do is uh, I really love, you can do a step up or I like the single leg pick shark or a single leg step up where they're holding onto something. And then let's say they're stepping up the right leg, you hook the band around them and you pull them towards their right side. And I'm talking, they may be doing a uh, 500 pound single leg pitch shark step up, but they're also having a couple hundred pounds of band tension try to shift them towards the right leg to cause that instability. And then they go, and then when they do their step up, it actually activates that uh, um, glute med and, and everything in that stability. That's one exercise that I think has helped. But you're you're dead right. If if they're stuck in that pattern, Chad, uh, in regards to that that bilateral one all the time. You see it. You see it many, many times. And you know who? You know actually who affects is the longer leg athletes quicker. Yes. And it does this. You know what I'm saying? Yes. One hundred percent of the time. Well, You're dead also, right on that. And, and also on that, along with the ankle symptoms, have seen that as well. So great point. Um, they may not be it to the level of turf toe, but a lot of times they'll have, that big toe will will be a lot be a problem for them. So whenever you get into that split squat position with the back foot and the angle that that is created with that big toe and the pressure there, you know, now are we getting into, Hey, that glute on that particular side, is it functioning properly? And I mean, possibly, right. I mean, that's, we know that we, I yeah. think we all understand the connection of the big toe and the glute. And so, yeah. um, you know, that's, you kind of start getting into those, those things and then you start, well, what's the next cascade of events. So, <laughs> yeah. Oh boy. It, who knows where it goes, but they yeah. compensate well and they get through it, mm-hmm. you know, right. <laughs> to say the least. Yeah. The best athletes are the best compensators. Oh, it's so bad. And, and people <laughs> yeah. don't realize that when you say that, like, they, they don't, you know, what do you mean? They're like, you oh, know, he can high perform, but 
trust me, he he's on the border of breaking at this point. But <laughs> but he's a high performer. I'm like, yes, but he's on the and he's good at it because he's got he's got problems and he can still perform. That's yeah. the beauty of these people. Yeah. So Yeah, right on. Um, hey, well, amazing stuff this evening, gentlemen. And again, I, I know, thank you for staying with me, uh, getting late over there on the east side of the country, but totally appreciate this. This is, um, yeah, it's been awesome. Thank you very much for being on the show tonight. Appreciate it. Thanks, Joel. Thanks, Joel. Yeah, thank you. All right, that does it for another episode. Thanks for tuning in today. We really appreciate you guys listening, being part of what we're doing here. And man, I love those roundtables. So much fun and so many great notes taken from that show. All right, so if you like what we're doing and want to support the show, definitely head over to iTunes or Stitcher. Leave us a rating or review. It really helps spread the word for what we're doing, and I definitely appreciate it. Our sponsor is SimplyFaster.com. They have been longtime supporters of this show, so we can't thank them enough. Be sure to support their website, read their blog, check out what they have to offer in their store. Again, thank much thanks to SimplyFaster.com. All right, I'm signing out for this week. We'll see you guys around. Have a good one.